Thank you all very much for coming. The uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the governing body running the current meeting in Lima, is uh, initially a very successful treaty. Uh, drawn up in 1992, it's been signed by virtually every nation on the surface of the earth. Um, it's relatively easy for them to sign it because it doesn't actually require them to do anything. Um, but what it does do is set an aim. And the aim is laid down in the treaty. Um, the ultimate objective of this convention is to achieve stabilization of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. If you have anything much to do with climate change, this is a phrase you learn by heart. Dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. It comes up uh, again and again. So that was agreed decades ago. And it has very broadly, in um, a very general way, um, determined the international political process uh, ever since, how it goes. Very, very broadly, what goes on at meetings under the UNFCCC has three steps. The first step is to try and figure out what's dangerous. That's to say, what concentration of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere um, is low enough to prevent... Uh, dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. So that's figuring out dangerousness. Once that's done, once somehow or other that's been figured out, the next thing is to work out what emissions of greenhouse gases are, are, are possible um, without going over the dangerous boundary. How many... What, quantity of emissions is possible in the world without getting to this dangerous level. So that's the second step. And the third step, having settled that, is to allocate these emissions, permissible emissions, among the nations uh, of the world. Um, and a lot of the argument is about that uh, third step. And that's the part of it where you find most of the moral philosophers interested in climate change congregating they cluster around that third step of distributing emissions among countries. The reason for that is that that third step clearly involves issues of fairness uh, and uh, justice. Um, a very rough description of the transaction of climate change is that people, primarily rich people who live in rich countries... Uh, emit greenhouse gas, which then spreads itself across the world and does harm to people who live in other countries, and are many of them uh, quite poor. And at any rate, greenhouse gas, the matter of greenhouse gas is that some people do the emission, and this does harm to other people. Now, there's obviously some sort of an injustice uh, involved in that, especially insofar as it's a transaction between rich and poor, so there are clearly issues of justice or fairness involved in climate change, and they're going to impinge on this third question, 
how should we divide emissions among countries? For example, this is something that's very much debated. Should the rich countries be expected to provide compensation to the poorer countries for all the emissions of greenhouse gas that have happened in the past and that have led them to be rich countries? Do we owe compensation to the poor people in the world who are suffering from our past emissions of gas? That's uh, an issue of justice which is debated when people talk about how um, emissions should be divided uh, uh, among the countries. So there are clearly these issues, and they're moral issues. So I hope this makes it quite clear that morality is inevitably involved in climate change, and the philosophers who get involved in climate change often congregate uh, uh, around this issue. Um, I'm going, during the course of this talk, to quote to you uh, a few sentences that come from the latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which I'm one of the authors of. These are going to be quotations that come from the synthesis report, which was finally approved only a month ago in Copenhagen. And um, I can't say that I'm terribly proud of the result that we achieved in, uh, in Copenhagen, but it does have some bits in it that uh, are worth being proud of. Not proud because the process of writing the policymaker's summary, which is what I'm going to be quoting, involves political, um, I could say political interference. The IPCC reports as policies for summary makers have to be improved by governments and the governments all turn up at a big meeting and they make suggestions about how the text uh, should be changed, and this happened a lot in uh, Copenhagen. Particularly, it happened in the section of the synthesis report, the policymaker summary of the synthesis report, which deals with ethics. So, um, in my quotes, I've done a little bit of filleting. I've done something which you need to do if you ever come to read the policymaker summaries of IPCC reports. You need to filter out the dross. Because you can be sure that in the pr approval process, some dross has got itself inserted by political processes. On the whole, in Copenhagen, we managed to keep the text that we, we, we wanted. We didn't get much deleted, but we did get a lot of stuff inserted in the middle. So what you have to do, this is a general recommendation for reading these policymakers' summary. Look at them and see what the authors are really trying to say and just delete what you can see there's been imposed on them. So that's what the three dots are doing here. There's, <laughs> there's stuff that's been taken out here. Nevertheless, this says something which I think is obvious, but nevertheless was worth saying. It says mitigation and adaptation, these are code words for what we do about climate change, raise issues of equity, justice and fairness, and then it goes, gives some examples. Many of those most vulnerable to climate change have, contribu have contributed and contribute little to greenhouse gas emissions. Delaying mitigation shifts burdens from the present to the future. Now, those are supposed to be examples of the injustices that go along with uh, climate change. And the, the nations of the world, in effect, all the nations of the world, have now actually agreed to this. This is the great thing about having government approvals once it gets through the policymaker summary, they can't deny it anymore because they've actually agreed to it. So the governments have accepted that climate change is a moral problem. You know, this is written in code, but that's what it says. 
And that, I think, is a, a small step because it's sort of obvious, but nevertheless, it is an achievement to get the governments to admit that. Climate change is a moral problem. Um, and I'm going to talk about aspects of this moral problem which are not the ones that the philosophers have mostly concentrated on. The philosophers involved in climate change are mostly political philosophers, and they're very interested in justice This is one, and fairness. This is one of the special concentrations of uh, political philosophy. And the effect of that is that they've worked on this third step, which is obviously about justice and fairness. And the first two steps I described of the process have largely, until recently, been left to the scientists and to the economists and to the political process to determine. So the first step was deciding what's dangerous, things like that. However, dangerousness is obviously a matter of value. It's an evaluation to say that, that the concentration involves dangerous interference with the climate system is making some evaluation. So a matter of value is, is uh, involved, and value is a concern of ethics, a concern of uh, morality and therefore of moral philosophy. So there is moral philosophy to be done in the first two steps as well as the third, and what I like to try and propagate is the realization of that, because I think more moral philosophy should be involved in these first steps as well as uh, the third one. Very roughly, you can think of morality as divided into two departments. There's a department that's about justice, fairness, and stuff like that, and there's a department that's about value. Being about value, it's about how, how the world can be made better, what things are good in the world, um, uh, what, are, what are the ways to improve things for people, to improve people's well-being, that sort of thing. And this is a concern for moral philosophy too. And this is the one that I would like more moral philosophers to be uh, interested in, and it's the one that I'm going to uh, talk about. It's value theory. Ethics, part of ethics is uh, value theory. Um, and this has not really been much recognized in the political process, including within the IPCC, um, uh, uh, until now. Here's, a, here's an, an example. This is something that comes not from the current synthesis report, but from the one from a decade ago. The third assessment report it was, actually. This was largely written by scientists, and no doubt interfered with by politicians as well. And this is what it says. So this is, this is what it said 10 or 15 years ago. Natural, technical, and social science can provide essential information and evidence needed for decisions on what constitutes, now the famous remark, dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. At the same time, such decisions are value judgments determined through socio-political processes. Now, I think the scientists there have got one thing right and one thing wrong. They've recognized that we're dealing with values. These are judgments of value. What dangerousness is, uh, is something to do with values. So they've recognized that. But then they've Im implicitly suggested that that means that they've got to be determined through socio-political processes. Leave that to the political process, they're saying. As though they think that when you're talking about values, really anything goes. You know, There's nothing intelligent to be said by academics who might be able to do some analysis of this sort of thing. Nothing of that sort can be said. Instead, you've just got to farm it out to the political process. This is quite a common view, uh, quite a common view amongst scientists, 
that values are just a matter of opinion. You know, let any, anything goes. Um, uh, and that, I think, was reflected in what they said there. Now, we've made a small improvement on that. So this is what the, the latest one says. It says, decision-making about climate change involves valuation and mediation among various, uh, diverse values. So it's a saying, again, that we're dealing with values. Then it says, and may be aided by the analytical methods of several normative disciplines. Then it says, ethics analyzes different values involved and the relations between them. It also refers to political philosophy, investigates, oh, it should say, investigates the question of responsibility for the uh, effects of... Um, Emissions. I think that typo may have got through into the final version. Um, uh, so you could at least we've got the people to recognise that there is a, there is some value theory to be done, and moral philosophers can do it. It also, and I'll be mentioning this later. There are other other academic disciplines which are interested in value theory. Economics is, for example, and uh, decision theory. So we've got we, we've got it recognised that there is something worthwhile to be said. Um, from an academic point of view, even when you're dealing with uh, values. And I think that's something that the scientists actually could uh, benefit from uh, recognizing. Um, I want to tell you something that the scientists have reported in this synthesis report. I think it's worth saying, because this is actually quite a, quite a dramatic remark, which they have endorsed, and which, once again, every country has endorsed. It says that if um, we want to have a good chance of keeping temperature increases below 2 degrees, then we can emit, in total, as cumulative emissions, we can emit a further 1,000 billion, that's to say a trillion tons of carbon dioxide. That's all we've got left if you want to keep a reasonable chance of staying below two degrees. And this is about just 30 years of emissions at the present rate. So we'll use it all up within 30 years. Now, I think that's quite a powerful remark, I must say. And I'm impressed that the scientists who are very cautious about these things were willing to make, make a remark that's quite as strong as that. And the governments had to accept it. So I think it's an important and dramatic Warning. However, I also think that the basis um, on which it's issued is not a very good one. Why do they think we should limit our emissions to a trillion tons of further carbon dioxide? Well, because it gives you, actually these are the figures, a better than two-thirds chance of staying below two degrees. Now, what sort of grounds are those? What about this two degrees in the first place? Where does that come from? This is meant to represent dangerous interference with the climate system, but actually there's really no basis for this. This is just a figure that's come up in the political process over the, over the decades. We're now focused on two degrees. It's actually embedded in the Cancun Agreement. But, so there's no real basis for the two degrees. And what's this about a two-thirds chance? I mean, whenever did statisticians concentrate on two-thirds chances? This is not a well-known statistical um, uh, measure. Uh, so why should we be interested in that? Really, no reason. It's because the scientists have got focused on likelihoods. If you look at the reports, the reports are always about what's likely to happen. What's very likely to happen? Is it likely that human beings have created this, this um, uh, increase in temperature? Is it 
very likely that it's going to be hotter in a decade from now than it is now, and so on. Likelihoods are what appear in the IPCC reports more than anything else. Um, and I will say in a moment that that is really not a good basis for, for decisions. And I do think that we should be able... The value theory tells us that. And we should be able to do uh, better than that. Still a dramatic warning, but not well-based. We do need value theory. Now, this first picture is just to say that we wouldn't need value theory if things were a bit simpler than they actually are. If climate change was like a cliff then we wouldn't need value theory. Here's a picture of a cliff. I've got concentration of greenhouse gas along this axis and value, that's to say how good the world is, roughly, uh, on this axis. And suppose the, the graph was something like this. So while we increase concentrations for a bit, well, we make things a bit worse, but not, nothing dramatic. But then we come to a point where we fall off a cliff. And once we do that, we're finished. Uh, processes are set in train that we cannot recover from. Suppose it was like that, then you wouldn't need much value theory to tell you you shouldn't go over the cliff. That would be sort of obvious. Um, so if the world was like, if climate change is like a cliff, you wouldn't need much theory. But actually, climate change is not like a cliff. Or rather, it could be like a cliff. But if it is, we don't know that. And we certainly don't know where the cliff is. It may be that we've already gone over a cliff. It may be that already processes are in train that will lead to uh, disaster. That's possible. We don't know. What we do know is only that as we increase concentrations, the chances of going over a cliff increase. And that means if we concentrate now on the expectation of value rather than on value itself, the graph of that in relation to the concentration is a downward slope. Um, what... what I mean by an expectation is what mathematicians mean by it. And to calculate an expectation, you take the bad thing that's likely to happen, sorry, the bad thing that might happen, you, you take the value of that, how bad it would be, and you multiply it by the probability that it's going to happen. So it's the badness discounted by the probability that it's going to happen. And as we increase concentrations, even if there is a cliff, we don't know where it is, but the probability that we're going over it steadily increases. So if its badness is fixed, um, but the probability increases, then the expected value diminishes. So that's more like the picture that we are actually faced with in practice. And this shows that we've got to do some balancing. As we get more greenhouse gas, things get, in expected value terms, steadily worse. Um, but it costs something to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gas, and we need to balance those um, two things uh, uh, against each other in order to determine what's dangerous. Or actually, it isn't really what's dangerous that we care about. Because notice, for one thing, that just because something's dangerous, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. There are some acceptable <laughs> dangers. For example, surgeons do dangerous operations. They know they're dangerous, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't do them. The danger that they undertake is worthwhile for the benefit of the, of the operation. So we, we're not really concerned with whether we're having dangerous interference. What we're concerned with is whether we're having interference that's so dangerous that we really shouldn't do it. And then if you think about it, well, danger isn't really the issue. I mean, the issue really is um, just to look at how bad these effects of climate change will be and balance them against the cost of doing, 
something uh, about it. What we're interested in is not what, what concentration would be dangerous, but just what concentration we should keep below. That's the, that's the, the, um, the aim sh we should be concerned with. Dangerousness is a slight, is a bit of a sideline uh, in the course of that. So we've got to do some balancing. Uh, that's the point. Now, how do we do these balancing? What, is the, what should this decision about what to do about climate change rest on? Well, here's something that value theory tells us. This is really comes from decision theory, which is a branch of value theory. Um, it says that when you make decisions, your decision should be based on expected values. Now, this is a bit of an oversimplification, and recent versions of decision theory have got a bit more uh, elaborate for that. But what we should do is look for the alternative that gives us the greatest expectation of value, where expectation of value is, is computed in the way I described. You look at the various things that might happen, you look at how good or bad they are, you weight each of those by the probability that it will happen, and you add up. So, in effect, you're taking a weighted average of the things that might happen, weighted by their probabilities. And what you're trying to do is get the thing that has the greatest weighted average of, uh, of uh, value. That's how we should make decisions. Now, I'm going to, not going to try and prove that. The basis is some axioms that underlie the theory. It's, it's sort of people find that intuitively attractive. When you go to a gambling salon, if you, ever, if you ever do, you automatically find yourself thinking in terms of expectations of money gains. So it's not outrageous to be told that it's expectations that you, you should concentrate on. But the argument for it is actually harder than you might uh, think. And I don't want to go into the details of that. What I do want to say is that one immediate consequence of it is um, that the rule of choosing the thing that's most likely to give you the best outcome... Um, is not uh, the right rule. Looking for what the, what the outcome is likely to be, which is the sort of thing you find in IPCC reports, the outcome is likely to be between 2 degrees and 4 degrees, and this is likely to do a certain amount of harm. That's not the right basis on which to, to base a decision. And if you think about that for not very long, um, you'll see why. Um, it's because something that's unlikely may be extremely important in decision-making, particularly if it's really bad. Um, here's an example. Ships ought to have lifeboats on them. Why ought they to have lifeboats on them? Well, not because they're likely to sink. They're not likely to sink. Not many ships do sink. It's because in the very unlikely event that they do sink, if they haven't got any lifeboats, then that would be a real tragedy. Something really bad would, would happen. So, an unlikely chance of something really bad may determine what you ought to decide. Having lifeboats on a ship is expensive. You've got to buy the lifeboats. Um, and what's likely to happen is that they'll never get used. So, you've wasted all that money that you spent on, on the lifeboats. What's, this, it's not, having lifeboats is not the thing that's most likely to give the best result. The reason you should have lifeboats is the small chance that you might get a really bad result if you uh, don't have them. That's sort of obvious. And it means that merely looking at likelihoods is not the right way to uh, go. 
Um, so the lesson to draw from this is that when we're thinking about um, climate change, decision-making about climate change, we need to look at the expected harms and the expected benefits uh, that arise, expected harms that arise from climate change and expected benefits that might arise from policies to deal with um, climate change. And in the course of doing, doing that, one thing we're definitely going to have to think about is whether climate change is a problem like the lifeboat problem. Is, what we should, what, is it an important thing that matters in climate change that there is a small chance of a total catastrophe? The economist Martin Weitzman has been propagating the idea for quite a while that actually this is really the most important thing about climate change. Not what's likely to happen, but the small chance, the unlikely chance that there will be a total catastrophe that comes, comes from it. And this is really something that we need to face up to if we're thinking about uh, what we should do about climate change. So one of the issues that comes up when you think about this is, is climate change like a lifeboat problem? I've got another quote um, now from this uh, latest synthesis report. It's recognizing what I've just been saying, that you really need to look at the possibility of really bad things happening, even if they're not very likely. It says, evaluating responses to climate change involves assessment of the widest possible range of impacts, including low probability consequences with l low probability outcomes with large consequences. Um, they uh, are, um, that's telling us that you, you've got to look even at the unlikely things that might happen if they're really bad. And I think that's, that's an advance too. So we've got to do valuation, calculate expected values. That's a matter of doing valuation. And I hope it's obvious that valuation is a method, matter for ethics. Ethics is what decides, how, what investigates how good and bad things are, ultimately. So this is, this is a, a place for ethics, ethical theory, moral uh, philosophy. And that's why moral philosophy should be involved in this. However... Putting it into practice is going to involve calling on other disciplines. It's certainly going to involve calling on, it, on economics, just because the climate change problem is such a big problem. It involves everybody on the earth, and it involves everybody on the earth for centuries. So it's huge. And um, economics has the equipment to deal with such large and complex problems. Economics is good at what's called aggregation. It's good at putting together effects that happen to a lot of different people at different places and at different times. It's good at thinking about how to aggregate those goods and bads that happen very, in very different places, how to aggregate those together. So we need the methods of economics. Um, we're not going to be able to do climate change in practice without them. In fact, we're going to have to do, in a very broad way, cost-benefit analysis, which is what economists uh, economics um, is good at. But it's essential that these methods of economics are founded on good ethics. I mean, the basis of the economics has to be uh, ethics. And here we are with another thing from the summary, uh, from the synthesis report. Economics and decision analysis provide quantitative methods of valuation. That's just what I've said. They're, they're good at the quantitative methods. Economic methods can reflect ethical principles, and I just said they should, and take account of non-marketed goods. Forget about that. Equity, well, that's, uh, I've been, that's a moral matter, and I've been talking about that. And also this thing here, the differing values of money to different people. What this is saying is that economists need to recognize 
that if you're poor, money is really very valuable to you. You can buy your next meal with an extra dollar if you get one, whereas if you're very rich, an extra dollar counts for, for almost nothing. So when they're doing monetary evaluations, economists need to adjust for the different values of money for different people. And that's what the synthesis report says. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to just raise some of the particular questions of valuation that come up. Um, and I'll just go through them until I run out of time, really. I'm going to pick ones which I hope philosophers might think are interesting ones. That's to say, questions that come up when you're dealing with climate change that raise problems of ethics that um, you, you might think haven't really been sorted out in uh, ethics before, that demand some new thinking in ethics. That's, of course, something that makes these things um, uh, interesting to philosophers. And that means I'm going to talk about valuation of life and death, because you might well think that that's the place where you're going to expect um, the more interesting problems to come up. So, here's a problem of valuation that comes up when you're dealing with climate change. Um, set a value on the killing that it's due, going to do. Climate change is already killing lots of people. Um, here are ways it does it. Um, the more obvious waves, the ones that come directly through the, the weather, heat waves. The 2003 heat wave in Europe killed lots and lots of people. Storms, well, we know about Hurricane Sandy and Katrina. Flooding, well, that kills people. Droughts, another weather effect, um, leads to famines and starvation. So those are direct weather effects. They're also more important, are effects on the distribution of diseases. Diarrheal diseases flourish more in a hot climate. And malaria is already climbing the mountains in Africa. It's occurring at heights when it never, where it never occurred before. And malaria is one of the world's great killers. Um, and then there's simply the effects of poverty and malnutrition. Um, climate change will increase poverty in some parts of the world, and people who are on the breadline um, can, can starve uh, uh, as a result of not having enough uh, food. So those are ways that it kills. I can even give you some rough numbers. These are very rough, let me say. The basis on which these are calculated is not something you should rely on. Um, they come from respectable sources, um, the World Health Organization calculated that in 2004, climate change killed 141,000 people. And this same method has been extended by another respectable organization called the Global Humanitarian Forum to say that uh, 300,000 people were killed by climate change in 2010 and leading us to expect about half a million people a year to be killed within a, a decade or two from uh, now. And that, there's no end to that. Climate change will do, do its killing for a very long time. So if it's half a million people a year, this is, going, this is going to amount to tens of millions. So this gives you an idea of the scale of the problem of the killing done by climate change. It's, it's a big scale. So if we're going to think about making valuations about the, the badness of climate change and the goodness of policy, we have to think, how do we set a value on this? What do we, what do, we do about the... All, this, um, all these deaths that are going to result from climate change. We've got to value them in some way or other. What, how do we do that? Well, actually, that's not a new problem for economists. Economists have been setting values on human lives for a um, very long time. They do it in terms of money. Um, 
And there are plenty of objections available to the actual concrete methods that, that they use. I don't think you should worry that they set the value in terms of money, because money is simply a unit of measure. I mean, they could equally well measure them in, say, do the measurement in terms of number of life years or something of, of that sort. You just need a common measure to compare the value of one thing against another. And economists are used to using money because that's, that's what they do. Um, but I don't think that that should be a problem. But you might think that there's much more fundamental objection to the whole idea of setting a value in life-saving life lives, which um, climate change policy will do, um, setting a value on saving lives that's to be set against other more mundane values. Climate change, if we, if we respond strongly to climate change, we'll save a lot of lives, but that will cost something. You know, we won't be able to travel on aeroplanes uh, so much. We'll have to make um, things like that. It will cost. And those are mundane, mundane things it'll cost. So... Um, uh, you might think there's something objectionable to treating values and these more mundane things on the, same, on the same scale, which is what economists typically do. Well, I think you shouldn't object to that. Um, you might, the first thing you might think is that lives are infinitely valuable. This is what some people say. But I think that's clearly false. There are cases where it's worth... Um, where the loss of some people's life is actually justified for the very great benefit uh, that can result from it. I mean, we, we, we do this in the health service, actually, regularly. The health service does not devote all its resources to saving people's lives. It devotes some of them to making lives better. For example, it isn't all devoted to heart replacements. Some of it's devoted to hip replacements. A hip replacement doesn't save your life. What it does is give you a better life while you are alive. And we think that's worthwhile. We don't think we should take all the hip replacement money and put it into heart, heart replacements. We think that other things, as well as saving lives, are worthwhile, and I think we're right to do that. I think that, that just as a matter of intuition, if you set your minds to it, you will see that actually sometimes saving lives can be balanced against other things. You might think, though, this is, I think, a better thought, that... There is a sort of incommensurateness, not that lives are infinitely valuable compared with other goods, but there's a sort of incommensurateness with them. That's to say, you can't put them on the same scale. You can't say that saving three years of a person's life is worth the same as giving a person a hip replacement that will last for 15 years or something like that. You can't precisely make a measurement of that sort. And I, I agree, that seems quite plausible. But that's not a problem that's raised particularly by life-saving, because that sort of incommensurateness arises all the time within uh, our lives. Um, often when you're thinking about mundane things, like is it better to spend your money on getting a good meal, or should you go out for the day to enjoy the sunshine or something, those two things may seem incommensurate. There may not be a definite answer to which is the better one of those. Incommensurateness is intuitively something that comes up an awful lot in valuation. And it comes up amongst mundane goods. But it doesn't particularly come up in the comparison of mundane goods with the value of life. And that's because the value of a person's life is nothing other than the value of the mundane goods that she has while she's alive. 
if you save somebody's life by climate change policy or whatever, so she lives a longer life, what good does it do that? Do her? Well, it gives her all the things, the good things that she gets in a life that otherwise she would have lost through her early, early death. So the good of saving life is actually nothing other than the mundane goods. And so there's no special incommensurateness there. So I said I would talk about problems that come up. Can I go on? You, you wanted me to finish after about 45 minutes or something like that? Do you know exactly when I started? Was it about 25 to? So if I was to go on another 10 minutes, would that be a disaster? Good. Thank you. Um, well, that's talking about one end of life, the dying end. But climate change also raises important questions at the other end, the, the um, creating, the coming into existence uh, end. Because climate change will undoubtedly change the world's population. It's not clear which direction it will change it in at the moment. What we might call moderate climate change, the sort of climate change that we expect, which is, say, between 2 and 4 degrees, will have two different sorts of effect we, we can predict on population. One thing is that it will slow down economic development. Um, climate change is definitely bad for economic development and development is one of the best contraceptives the, 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 what limits um, population growth in, what has limited it and brought it down in many countries is economic development so if we slow that down a consequence of that might be we get more people in the world but on the other hand the world will become less habitable so even 3-4 degrees may lead to a big rise in the sea levels certainly a metre and there are um, uh, many millions of people living within one metre of the sea level in various estuaries, in Bangladesh and in the Mekong uh, Delta. So one level sea level, one metre sea level rise, is those people are going to have to move unless we build a seawall around Bangladesh. So there's going to be huge um, uh, movements of population. The, the earth is just going to be less habitable. And that may, that may um, act against the growth of population. There may be um, more and more tragedies, more famines, uh, wars over resources and so on, and that will, help, will cause the number to decrease. So for likely climate change, we don't know what's going to happen. For rather more dramatic climate change, say 6, 8, 10 degrees, we do know it's going to cause the population to fall because the world will be much less uh, habitable. Um, most of the cities of the world will find themselves uh, underwater. The freshwater resources in Asia will pretty much dry up during the summer. Um, it's going to be really bad. And the Earth simply will not be able to support the number of people that we have now. So with... with um, Extreme climate change, we can expect a crash in population. So there will be changes in population. And if we're to think about the badness of climate change and the goodness of doing something about climate change, we need to think about the values of those. We have to think, is it a good idea to have more people in the world? Is it a bad idea to have more people? Is, is actually reducing the population, is that a good idea? That's, those are issues that we really need to think about. Um, uh, uh, but... Um, uh, what it says here is that um, almost universally, the policymakers, policymakers who do any sort of policy, ignore the effects on population. It's quite conspicuous how blatantly they ignore the effects on population. 
So, for example, our own NICE, which sets a value on medical treatments, has evaluated fertility treatment. Now, the point about fertility treatment is that it changes the population. It brings a new person into the world. But NICE quite explicitly declines to take account of that effect, of the effect of the change in population, in its evaluation of fertility treatment. That's a explicit. But in many other um, areas of policy, taxation policy, taxation policy, for example, will change the population, undoubtedly. It will affect people's behavior, it will change the population. Changing population is never taken into account. So this is a universal um, determination to ignore uh, this effect. And I've said this is the elephant in the room of climate change valuation. The policymakers who deal with climate change also universally uh, uh, ignore that. We really need to think about the value of these things, and they won't, they won't do it. I mentioned here some example, some exceptions. The economists who work on climate change sometimes do optimization. They look at what would be the very best program for dealing with climate change over time. That means they try to, to optimize. They need to have something or other that they're maximizing, some value. So they have to set a value on the world as it progresses through time. And that means they can't help taking account of population because the population of the world changes as we go through time. They know it changes. Um, so actually, in some of the studies of the optimization studies done by economists, we do find um, a value set on population, not generally one that's very well thought out, but it, there are some exceptions. But on the whole, it gets ignored. Why is that? Well, I think it's because policymakers, like most of the rest of us, are in the grip of something I call the intuition of neutrality. What this means is, we actually think that increasing the population or decreasing the population, that by itself is ethically neutral. We don't think it's a good thing or uh, a bad thing. I've got a quote here from the philosopher Jan Narveson, which I think encapsulates this thought very nicely. What Narveson said was, we are in favor of making people happy, but neutral about making happy people. We're keen, if, we have, um, if we're interested in morality, in, in particular in promoting value, we're keen to make the people we've got better off, but we see nothing, we see nothing to be said for having uh, extra people in the world. We're neutral about that. They don't think it's a good thing uh, or a bad thing. That's what I call the intuition of neutrality, that adding a person... We concentrate on just one person. Adding a person to the population of the world makes the world neither better nor worse. You might think that there's an exception to that, or some exceptions. You might think that adding a person whose life would be not very good to the world is a bad thing. We mostly think that we should be against having people whose lives would be really rather bad, who, who live, will live in constant pain. Uh, for example. So you might think there's a lower limit to this. We're against people whose lives will not be very good. We, would, we think it's better if those people don't come into existence. And conceivably, you might think the opposite thing, that if there was a person whose life was wonderful, then it would be a good thing to have her. But at any rate, we think there's some range uh, within which if you add a person with a level of well-being somewhere in that range, then that's neither a good thing uh, nor a bad thing. I've actually written that out um, more formally here. I'm not going to bother you with it, um, how it's written there. That's just formalizing what I've just said. But it says that um, 
And I think this intuition of neutrality might be why the policymakers universally ignore changes in population. They think they can be properly ignored because changes in population are uh, ethically uh, neutral. But now it says they're wrong about that. Um, actually, this intuition of neutrality cannot be used to justify um, ignoring the effects on po population in evaluating uh, changes um, uh, in policy. Um, I think that I won't try and demonstrate this to you because I'm running out of time. If you press me, then I can, I can do the argument later. So I'm afraid you're just going to have to take this as an assertion. This is actually one of the things that we philosophers who worked on the value of population, I think have pretty well dis um, discovered in the last couple of decades, that this intuition of neutrality, it may be wrong, or possibly it may be right, but even to the extent that it's right, it doesn't justify ignoring changes in, uh, in population. So actually, the elephant in the room really cannot properly um, uh, uh, be ignored. Um, it says here I'm going to give you the beginning of the argument, but in fact I'm not. I'm going to skip through this argument here. And uh, just to come to a conclusion. That argument, had I been able to show it, would have been the beginning of an argument that said <laughs> there's no justification for ignoring this elephant. We really do need to think about the value of population. And unfortunately, we in philosophy have not got very far with that. Well, or at least we've not arrived at a consensus about it. Philosophers have thought about this for getting on for 50, 40 or 50 years now. And there's still a lot of argument um, about how should we set a value on changes in population. And this is a bad situation since it's in practice such an important problem when we face up to climate change. This is something on which we urgently need to um, uh, make progress. And perhaps I can say one other thing. The fact that we find it so hard to make process, progress tells us something else that's needed when thinking about how to handle climate change. Because climate change is an urgent problem. We need to act to, on climate change. But since the effects on population are so big and important, we really do not yet have the proper basis on which to decide how to act. We don't have the theory of value that would give us a proper basis on deciding what to do. So we have the problem of having to make a decision when we haven't got a firm basis on which to make it. We don't have a proper value theory on which to make it. What should we do? Well, that itself is a problem for moral philosophy. Now being explored within the last 15 years or so, the question is called, often called the problem of moral uncertainty. When you don't know the right moral basis for making decisions, you've got some ideas about it, but you don't really know what they are, what decisions should you make? And um, that's uh, a, a problem for moral philosophy too. And that's the end. Thank you.